0: Welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. So Jesus was debating with a bunch of religious leaders and one of them came up and he saw what was going on and he asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus replied, Hear Israel the Lord your God the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and there's a second you shall love your neighbor as yourself would you open a bible or an app to Luke chapter 19 Starting at verse 1, talking about Jesus, it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, much of what's going on in this scene escapes us because it wouldn't happen in our lifetime now. We live in a far gentler world. But in all likelihood, all of Zacchaeus' children and his wife were shunned by everybody else in society unless they were also the wife or children of a tax collector or some other outcast, no one would have anything to do with it. Have you ever experienced that at school, being shunned or having somebody just mad at you for a day and how it feels? Can you imagine how that would have felt to be shunned and to be just kind of an outcast? When I was small, when I was a kid, uh, I just happened to grow up with a bunch of guys that were tall. So I was small, short, like Zacchaeus, and one of our guys in the group, Bradley, he was the bully, and he would pick on me, and I, I dreamed of, of, you know, the back of those um, comic books back then, they had muscle Man, and you could, you know, pay $100 or something and become a muscle man in six weeks, and I dreamed of, I never did, but I dreamed of doing that and beating up Bradley. Um, in our school, from the time I was in kindergarten, I believe, was a guy named Timmy. I grew up on the same block as Timmy until I was five, and Timmy was the class outcast, Timmy was awkward. Um, He may have had what we today would call, you know, some kind of learning disability or something, and nobody cut him any slack. It was awful. I'm so glad a couple of our kids grew up around here where that kind of bullying and picking on people isn't allowed. But in, in my day, when I was growing up, it was there was always somebody in the class that people were mean to, and it was awful. Because when most people are rejecting you, how do you feel about yourself? Probably don't don't feel too good. You probably are inclined to reject yourself as well. If life is not living up to your expectations, if it's too hard, or if you feel unvalued by others, that also can result in you feeling like, nobody really loves me. Now, about a month ago, I'm going to recap it for those of you who weren't here, we went over the parable of the prodigal son in which a man has two sons. The youngest says, give me my inheritance, which is a third of everything. The father gives it to him. He goes off, lo- spends it all on prostitutes and wild living. And then he comes, to his senses comes back. And while he's far off, the father runs to him, welcomes him back, throws him a party. But when the elder son hears about it, he refuses to go into the party. And he says, I've slaved for you my whole life. And you, wouldn't even give, you haven't even given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And that's called the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus told it to a crowd of both prodigals, tax collectors, and sinners like Zacchaeus, but also in the crowd were a bunch of religious leaders who were a lot like the elder son in the parable and didn't really actually love God but were slaving away from Him. So our culture celebrates that parable as it being aimed at people who have really sinned badly and telling them, come on, God, will welcome you back. That's what the parable is about. And it certainly is about that, but that's not what Jesus' focus was. It's really misnamed as a parable. It shouldn't be the parable, parable of the prodigal son. It should be the parable of the two lost sons. Because both the prodigal and the elder son are lost. Neither are in a right relationship with their father. And Jesus was actually Aiming this story at the religious leaders who were reminded us of who remind us of the elder son in the ancient world. Most people were religious. Today in our culture we have a lot of people who, I don't believe in God, I don't know what they in the ancient world almost everybody had god, a god or gods and they were very much aware that there is a spiritual realm that actually impacts the physical realm. They weren't idiots, they didn't do sacrifices and things because there was no effect, they saw effects of the types of things they would do and so they would go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and the priest would say some incantation and sometimes something would happen. But their gods didn't love them. Their gods took on a lot of human characteristics. Sometimes there were gods that were angry with them. Sometimes they were gods that didn't even care about them. Sometimes there were gods that were capricious. They needed to be placated, and so they would basically make a deal with their gods through their priests in their temples for them to get something that they wanted. See, it was a, it was a very brutal world. In the ancient world, many of you know that if you had a child a fourth of your children, if you had children, a fourth of them died before reaching the age one. Another fourth died before reaching the age 10. Can you imagine what that would be like? It was just brutal. We didn't have germ theory. People blamed their gods for this, and so they tried to make deals with them. Now, among the Jews, there were primarily two kinds of people. There were the prodigal-type people that just, they just felt, oh, I'm so bad, I give up, God's never going to love me. And then there were the elder brother types, which would have been the people Jesus was aiming that story at that were kind of religious, and some of them very religious. And so they felt like they were holding up their end, the bargain they'd made with God. They were slaving away for God, and so God would hold up his end of the bargain. They were good enough. They were keeping the rules so God would bless them. Which do you think that you personally tend to be like? The ones who feel like, yeah, I'm keeping the rules and God will be good to me, or the ones that, I'm so bad, God could never love me? Churches generally tend to have more of the former, the elder brother types. And it's so easy for us to slip back into that way of thinking of, Oh, yeah, now I'm keeping the rules so God will love me more. I, there was no, there's no question in my mind. When I came into the kingdom, when I turned my life over to Jesus in high school, I was like the prodigal. I just was messed up and done a bunch of stuff that, um, you know, hard to believe that he would love me. But it's interesting that as the years go on and we're involved in a church or, doing, or Jesus is transforming us, our tendency is to devolve into more of an elder brother type of attitude where, Oh, yeah, I'm keeping the rules and... God will be good to me or God will bless me. Jesus comes along and completely breaks the mold. He loves the worst person in town, Zacchaeus, in Jericho, in front of everyone so that everyone will know that God loves the worst. It it was astounding to them. What did they do? They grumbled. Now he's going to stay with a real sinner. Jesus is not playing by their rules but he's come to seek and save the lost. They just don't realize they're also lost. So prodigals like Zacchaeus, or like the ones that were in the crowd when Jesus told the parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son, they generally realize they're not good and they kind of feel because of all the rules of the elder brothers, God could not possibly love them. And similarly, those in our society who feel rejected by society, for whatever reason, our society is so, there's so much pressure to excel, to be stellar in something, to look a certain way, to perform a certain way, whether it's school or sports or your, your career, that whenever we don't feel stellar, we just tend to go to the place of, oh, God doesn't really love me. See, in front of all Jericho, Jesus befriends the friendless. Elder brother types generally feel they've been nice enough or good enough, at least, maybe not deep down, but at least in some way, to satisfy God. They've kept their side of the bargain. God will keep his side of the bargain. This is actually similar... Through the ancient religions that existed, where people would go to a temple and make a bargain with God and give a sacrifice, and the priest would say an incantation, and away they would go, hoping that their kid wouldn't die, or their enemy would, or that they would succeed, or whatever it might be. Jesus comes along and says that neither the prodigal nor the elder brother is understanding God. They're both misunderstanding. They're misunderstanding God's intentions and his desires. And he demonstrates this over and over with befriending people like Zacchaeus. What was Jesus' fame? Who, did Jesus, what was, who was he famous for hanging out with? Tax collectors and sinners. Everybody thought, this is a weird rabbi. He's hanging out with the bad people that if he touches them even, he'll be unclean. He comes and breaks the rules and breaks the mold to say God loves you. Whether you're an elder brother type keeping the rules or you're a prodigal disobeying them all. God's interest is not in getting you to be a rule keeper. We're beginning a very brief new series today. It's kind of back to the basics um, or building blocks, looking at the purposes of the church today. We're going to look at kind of one way to summarize it. We'll approach it in different ways. In part, we're doing this because we're we're really heading into a very exciting time as a church where um, we're trying to see how God is going to lead us to effectively reach future generations. And, and part of that is I'm going to be passing the baton as the senior pastor passing on to the next one. We have, in, in my experience, in all the churches I've been in, the best um, process for finding God's, God's person to succeed me. And I'm very excited to see who that will be. We have a fantastic group of people working on it with a really good process. So be praying for them. Uh, we're not sure exactly how long that will take, but uh, very exciting. So during this exciting time of transition it's important for us to kind of go back to the basics and say, okay, so what are we all about as a church? But it's also important because whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you're faking it and you know you're faking it and you're just kind of, for whatever reason here, or whether you're not faking it but you really don't realize you haven't understood the gospel yet, and you're just kind of feeling like, yeah, I'm, I'm holding up my end of the bargain. I'm going to church, and I'm being a good person and living a moral life, and so God will be good. To not the gospel. Whichever of those three you are, we tend to default to an elder brother mentality where we're keeping the rules and feeling because of that, God will be good to us. And we can slip back into being the kind of people who are not gentle or loving or gracious toward new people who come and aren't keeping the rules as we see them. So we need to constantly remind each other of the truth. God loves you. His intention is not to get you to follow a bunch of rules so you can earn his love. He already loves you. What he wants is a relationship with you. Now, this is a picture one Sunday here at Carmel Beach. Our grandkids, were a couple of them were visiting us. That's Richie on the right, Nathan in the middle, me on the left, I'm the grandpa watching over my grandsons. And um, I think Richie has a ball. And Nathan is posing. And they love the way their parents do this. Only allow them to watch 30 minutes of television a day. But what they watch are superhero animals. I forget what they're called. Paw, Paw Patrol? Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. I better work on my grandpa skills. Um, and, they're, and so, so in, the, in the show, you know, that's what they do. They go going to get the bad guy, or off we go, or things like that. And so that's what Richie, that's what Nathan does. We actually, and he, you know, wherever he goes, he finds a stick that's his sword. I mean, Richie doesn't, but Nathan, we had, when they left, we had three sticks lined up on our porch that he'd found that were kind of the, you know, standby swords, and uh, it was pretty fun. Um, Nathan can be kind of challenging sometimes. That's the one posing. Um, and his parents are working really hard to raise him well. They're fantastic. But it can be challenged. Every kid's different. But I just love them. God gave me grandkids to help me believe the gospel more deeply. It's just like I just love them. God just loves me. God just loves you. I don't expect them to do something for me. I don't expect them to earn anything. They just... I just love them. They... There, there's beautiful things about them. There's some other things. Not so beautiful, but there's some beautiful things about them. And that's the way God feels about you. He also sees what he's going to make you into, and that is astounding. He loves you. He's interested in you. It, that was an that was a completely contrary concept for the ancient world. They didn't think gods were interested in them. Did you know that in the early years, Christians were called atheists by the people in the Greco-Roman world because they'd come to them and say, so where's your, where, where's your temple? Oh, we don't have a temple. Well, who are your priests? We don't have any priests. You're not religious, you're atheists. Didn't fit their mold. Wasn't doing the bargaining with God the way they thought. Of course, today we do have temples and pastors and priests. Um, <laughs> And it becomes very easy to slip back into ancient patterns of thinking that we earn God's favor. See, Jesus befriends Zacchaeus precisely to show people that they have misunderstood God. Have you misunderstood God? Have you slipped back into that elder brother mentality? Do you feel that God, or, or, or maybe the prodigal mentality, that God could not love you because you've sinned so much like Zacchaeus? Or that you're pretty good, like the elder brother, and God will hold up His end of the bargain. See, this brings us to what we're calling our building blocks or our purposes in this this short series, and I'm going to say it in various ways over the next few Sundays. But this is what we like to say in terms of our messaging: be loved, love God, love others, and that's one way to summarize what we're all about. But where we start is being loved, loved by God and loved by others. Now. Many people in our society think that they are loved by God because they're good enough. They're nice people. They're reasonably moral. They're not selling drugs to kids. Um, by their standards, they're keeping their end of the bargain. That's They've misunderstood. So Jesus tells them the, prodigal of the, the parable of the prodigal son aimed at those kinds of people to let them know, no, that's, that's not the way God feels. It's not for you to slave away for God so you can have an inheritance. But then some people in our society, they feel God could not possibly love them, and maybe that's because they've done awful things, or maybe it's just because the message from our society to them is, you know, you're not very valuable. We don't really love you. We don't really care. Jesus becomes famous for hanging out with outcasts and sinners. In front of an entire city, he befriends the friendless Zacchaeus so that... All will know that God loves Zacchaeus, and if he loves Zacchaeus, then he loves me, and he loves you. So one of the great purposes here at CPC is to help people experience being loved. Loved by us, loved by God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, by befriending Zacchaeus, did Jesus convince everybody that saw that God loves everyone? Of course not. But some probably realized... What was going on? Did did Jesus just do it for show? No, he actually loves Zacchaeus. Well, how do we live out this purpose here at CPC? It's difficult for people to believe that God loves them unless followers of Jesus love them. And we cannot simply pretend. We have to actually, sincerely, genuinely love people and befriend them. Now, I've said this to you a number of times, but You are a wonderful group when it comes to this. And I've visited lots of churches whenever I'm on vacation or visit other churches. And honestly, I don't think anybody holds a candle to you guys. You're you're, you're so friendly. You greet people. You strike up sincere conversations. It's fantastic, and it should be that way. Now, that only goes so far, though, doesn't it? There are some of you who it's kind of your ministry to then go deeper with people. But for most people, you can't have 300 best friends. So you have to be in a small group. And I urge all of you to be in a small group. It's very difficult to feel known and loved without that. So watch for those opportunities and join one. But as a church, you, you honestly do much better at at least that initial loving, and then in the small groups, the deeper loving, than I, I've seen elsewhere. And it makes me very happy. Um, What do outsiders, people that aren't involved in churches, the rest of our society, what do they say about Christians? What do, they, what do they believe about us? What are we like? What's the scuttlebutt? That we are judgmental and self-righteous, and sometimes they'll put in hypocritical because they know we're not that good, um, especially if they know me. Um, they think that we're like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, like the religious leaders, and... I'm sure there, yeah, maybe somebody in a crowd this large might be that way, but in general, that is not true of you guys. You are not self-righteous, and you are not uh, hypocritical, and you are not judgmental. Outsiders have misunderstood you. We have a public image problem. Christians have been misunderstood from the beginning. Do you know that originally, they thought that when Christians were taking communion, they were actually drinking the blood of children? Yeah, and they thought they were atheists, as I said earlier. That we've always had these kinds of issues. The devil works overtime trying to be sure that we are misunderstood. Nevertheless, what did Jesus say about outsiders? That they would know we are his followers by what? The way we love each other. Will every single person who looks in that door and sees the way you love each other, oh, God exists and I want part of that? No, not every, but some will. Some will. Be loved. Be loved. Love God, love others. It usually starts by experiencing the love of some follower of Jesus toward us. When I was in high school, I wasn't a follower of Jesus yet, and I spent a year kind of studying the Bible with um, my young life leader and some other guys. We had hot chocolate and donuts, which was a big appeal. And um, I had asked all kinds of obnoxious questions about the Bible. What about this, and what about that? And Actually, they didn't even answer all my questions, but what they did was they loved me into the kingdom. I knew they loved me. At the end of the year, I turned my life over to Jesus. We experience the love of other followers of Jesus. It helps us to believe and experience the love of God. We love God back for who he is, not because it's a bargain we're striking with him, not because we want the goodies, but because he's actually incredibly beautiful and wonderful. And then he fills us with his spirit and gives us a genuine love for the people around us that's the building blocks that's the basics and I I'm setting that because I now want to talk to you about something different most of you are yeah okay we knew that right okay I may have something in the next few minutes that you don't know I want to talk to you for a few minutes about how the world has changed during my lifetime and what that means for the basic purposes of our church I've mentioned to you several times that last year when I was preparing for the series on the Reformation, I had an aha moment. And the aha moment was the following. You see, typical of many pastors in this country, I had become very snarky about the American church. Oh, we should be doing this. And oh, we're not you know, faithful enough in this. And, oh, this. and then as I studied the Reformation, I realized that in the history of the world... All of Western Europe called itself Christian before the Reformation, and yet very few people, percentage-wise, were engaged with Jesus seriously. After the Reformation, both Roman Catholics and Protestants became more engaged. But today in America, with 39% of the population saying they made a commitment to Jesus that's still important in their life today, with about 13% of the population that are just very committed to Jesus and making a big impact around them, I became convinced that actually in the history of Christendom, there's never been this kind of a large country with this much engagement with Jesus. So I I see things differently now. However, it's decreasing. With each successive generation, there are fewer and fewer people percentage-wise engaged seriously with Jesus. Now wonderful things have been happening with our high school students and that's been fantastic celebrating that in recent weeks and it could be an anomaly, it could be, a, it could be a difference, there could be the beginning of a revival, that would be fantastic. But in general, many scholars are wondering, will we go the way of Western Europe? Which declined and declined and declined until it's very, very few percentage-wise engaged with Jesus Christ. Why? Okay, second point. When I was growing up in the 1960s, just in that old, um, again and again, our parents would say to us, you finish your food because there are people die- starving to death in India. Anybody else get that? Nobody else in this group, okay. Um, last, last service, there were a bunch of us, okay? Yeah, there you go. So I cleaned that plate over and over. No, um, anyway, um, so... Um, In the late 1960s, the world experts were absolutely positive that millions of people were going to starve to death in India in the 70s. Do you remember reading about the millions of people who died starving to death in India in the 1970s? No, you didn't, because it didn't happen. Because dwarf wheat was developed, and the Green Revolution was in full swing, and it came to the place where between irrigation plants that were more more robust like dwarf wheat and pesticides and other cultivation techniques that the amount that was produced per acre zoomed, and by the end of the 70s, not only had millions of people not died, India was actually exporting wheat. Nobody foresaw that. Well, probably somebody did. You see, I've been reading a book. It's called Factfulness. It's by Hans Rosling. He's a Swede. I don't think he's a follower of Jesus from what I can tell so far, but I really like the book. You know why I really like the book? It agrees with me. <laughs> it's been saying what I've been teaching my students in Brazil and elsewhere for 30 years. Uh, and Factfulness is just one of a number of books that over the years have impacted me. These are highly researched books. And they're basically saying that in the last 50 years, there has been this astounding development, increase in prosperity and longevity in the, the world population. So that if you were to look at a graph of how much people were earning and how long they were living, and I'm doing it from your perspective over time, it's just going like this with the world population. And many of us were raised and were educated. You're all pretty educated. And so we were raised thinking of the developed world and the un- or underdeveloped world and how, oh, there's just billions and billions of people out there starving. No, it's gotten significantly better, impressively better. Doesn't mean there aren't problems. Doesn't mean there aren't bad things, that God weeps with these bad things that happen, but we should also rejoice with God that no longer do a fourth of the children die by age one and another fourth by age 10. No longer do people have no hope. Every society, the people living on the edge are developing and becoming More and more prosperous, and that is a good thing because God weeps when people starve to death. God weeps when people don't get the inoculations that they that would have prevented them from getting some kind of awful disease. But Rosalind, the author of this book, he's been working and talking to the World Bank Association and UN officials for over a decade trying to convince them of this reality, and he's discovered that people, no matter what the facts are, they really don't want to believe that things are getting better and better. So I'm not gonna be surprised if you don't believe what I'm saying. Read the book, okay? I can give you other books to read as well along the line. That's not my point. Um, his point is we, we base our public policy on misconceptions about how things are going, things are going much better than we think they are in terms of fewer people dying of violence and people, fewer people starving and many things like that, and you don't usually hear that in a sermon, but I'm, I'm getting to a point. Um, there's a corollary to the fact that humanity is getting more prosperous living longer, more educated wealthier. It's definitely good news that children won't die so young. But there's a dangerous corollary because I've become convinced that the devil's best weapon to keep people from Jesus and from heaven is prosperity. It doesn't make sense to me, but it is. When we were in Brazil, Brazil from 1900 to 2000 went from being of the population was rural and 25% lived in cities urban to being exactly the opposite by the year 2000. It was 75% urban and 25% rural. Created huge problems of infrastructure and various other things. But what you found was in the city where the more prosperous people were, in the middle of the city, there wasn't much going on. But on the periphery where the people that were kind of poor and struggling were, tons of people were coming to Jesus. And it's Now that they're more prosperous, it's calmed way down. For some reason, even though prosperous people have just as much drug addiction or more or families that are just being destroyed with uh, people not being able to get along or children that are just in big trouble or addictions to um, screen time or feelings of, we talked a few weeks ago about how loneliness is on the increase. All of these problems that have come with our prosperity and yet people don't turn to Jesus and I don't know why. But my corollary is the following, that in the real world that we live in, it has become harder to help people experience the love of God and become a follower of Jesus. So we have our work cut out for us. We need to be sure that we understand what our purposes are, that we are going to help people experience love and the love of God, and it's gotten harder. We're going to have to be committed We have to love each other well. You see, you have what they need. You have what deep down inside they want. They don't really want to have a life in front of a screen on their phone or their computer. It's easy. It gives them perks in their brain of little drugs that are released when they get surprises and things like that. But that's not, what people really want is to be loved. And you have that them it's gotten harder Paul warned but understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I think it's going to be harder than ever. This is a picture that um, this car wreck, this car was on the side of the road in Brazil. Um, people had made a misturn and they were conferring about how to get back on the road when a big semi came and smashed into the left side of the car and crumpled it like you see. Uh, driving the car was one of my best friends, Jaziel, who was the, my host when I was in Brazil recently, In the back seat behind him was Karen, who's the wife of uh, one of my brother Presbyterian pastors in Eco up at uh, Scotts Valley. Um, it's amazing that neither of them died. Just absolutely phenomenal. And we were talking on the phone yesterday for about a half hour, my, my buddy and I, and you know, he's 71, he'd already retired, but when you go through a, a, an experience like that, you reflect. And he's been reflecting as he's recuperating uh, now at home before in the hospital. And he just said, you know, and we'd gone through many of this many years before when people would disappoint us or they'd go off the deep end and he'd get you know, kind of reject them and get crosswise with them and, and so forth. He said, You know, I've made peace with all of them. And you know, I'm I'm not going to badmouth anybody anymore. I'm just going to love them. And I'm just going to keep loving them. And it just life is too short. And we also made the commitment that we're going to try and talk together at least once a month now. Because I almost lost them. You have what they need. You are part of the most important organization on the face of this planet, and you may not realize that. You, and only you, really are able to help people experience love and God's love and that is one of the major reasons that we're here Thank you for listening For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.